You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. First reading today is from Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12, and can be found on page 873. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away. He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. He responded, Not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. We now do the second reading, and that is from 1 Corinthians 7, commencing at verse 17, and can be found on page 1015. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter. An uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, 
He who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. Were you brought at a price? Do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain within God in the situation in which he was called. Reese, I teach at Ridley College, so I have the great joy uh, week by week of giving lectures, but not just to give lectures, training leaders for the church, uh, for the church in Melbourne and beyond. It's just as well that uh, Jono mentioned the fact that he hasn't forgiven me for the C minus, because I also haven't forgiven him. Uh, on, his, on his wedding day, as I was driving out to Diamond Creek, I got a speeding fine because I was running late, and he still hasn't offered to pay it for me. <laughs> Friends, I'm here this morning to talk about uh, same-sex attraction. A great philosopher named Descartes said, I think... Therefore I am. You might have heard of the slogan, I think, therefore I am. We could adapt it. A good capitalist might say, I consume, therefore I am. Or Sigmund Freud, I have sex, therefore I am. That's the way our society rolls. We assume that the only way you can build personal identity is through having sex. But you might remember, uh, I think it was last year, the TV show Married at First Sight. Not that I watched it, of course, but if I did, I would recall a cast member who was given the role of being the guy who'd never had sex. The series built around the conflict that came from him being a virgin, though uh, it comes out in the media after the series was finished that that might have been the way he was cast. It might not have been actually the way it was true. But if you typed 40 year into your Google search, you'd find that the first thing that comes up is 40 year old virgin, right? You don't even need to finish the sentence. You just know that so many people have Googled that movie, 40 year old virgin. In our society, a sex and sexuality are the bedrock of our personal identity. We, we, it seems to be the only thing that is really me. It's the thing that defines us, the most significant feature of my life as a human being. And there's a lot of philosophical background to that. Not that that's my job today, but in our world, what is local we think, is more likely to be true than what's universal. And there's nothing more local than your sexual experience or your sexual feelings. So we focus on what's local and that's how we build our identity. What's more local than how I experience or express myself physically? So in our sex-saturated society, being single and celibate is a really hard call. And I suspect that being married in our sex-saturated society is a really tough gig as well. I'm not trying to speak that only single people have it tough. But it is particularly difficult for me as a single, celibate, same-sex attracted man. This is my story. 
So I have to ask the question, how do I build my identity? How do I understand my sense of self? How do I think about myself sexually when sexual expression is not an option for me as a Christian? Well, in today's sermon, I want to step back a little for the first part, step back from pastoral issues and do a survey of the Bible. But then having done the survey of the Bible, I want to talk a little bit more about what it might be to pastor, to care for, to welcome folk in your fellowship, in your church who are same-sex attracted. I have a lot of skin in this game. I'm in the middle of big debates in our church nationwide about what Christians should think of uh, homosexuals, gays, same-sex attracted men and women, however you might choose to use the language. I've had people write to me who don't share my views of the scriptures, who tell me that I'm wrong in the way I've read the scriptures. I've, I've thought about it quite a bit, right? I've got a stake in this, I've really worked hard, but I can come to no other conclusion that God wants men and women to be married to each other and not men and men or women and women. But it is important, as I'll go on to explain, how we might care for those who are same-sex attracted. But it's great that we have the scriptures, right? Because making up or trying to work out what sexuality is about is not trying to do the jigsaw puzzle without the lid. If you were just given all the pieces and you said make a picture out of it, how hard is that? But if you're given all the pieces and you're also given the picture on the lid to create something that you already have a template for, that's a whole lot easier. And the scriptures give us those pieces. The scriptures give us the big picture that we then can work out how the pieces fit together. The Bible is our map, which gives us healthy orientation to what a flourishing life looks like. So, God in Genesis chapter 1 creates the world. And have you noticed that in Genesis 1, God separates things. He separates the night from the day. He separates the land from the seas. He separates, he separates, he separates. On all, on all the first six days, God separates. And we discover that in chapter 1, he makes men and women separate from each other, bearing his image, having great dignity with a gendered body. God, from the very first page of the Bible, gives us the gift of a body that's male or a body that's female. It's something that we haven't chosen. You didn't choose the language that your family speaks. You didn't choose the color of your skin. It's not that we always feel comfortable with those things, but there are some things in this world that God gives us that we don't have much choice in. But he gives us because he's generous, not because he's stingy. But remarkably, 
in Genesis 1, God has separated, separated, separated. Then in Genesis 2, something's wrong with the world. Adam doesn't have a helper. And God does something remarkable. He joins. The only thing he joins. Everything else is separate. He joins a man to a woman. He gives them marriage. He allows them to experience one flesh. The two become one. For though God has separated so many things in this world, a man and a woman joined together is a picture that God gives us of heaven, of the future, of the way he wants the world to be. God's great desire is to bring unity. But you can only bring unity when you've first separated the parts. Men and women being joined together is one of the deep realities that God has given to us, to our world. And he's given to all of us, men and women, an experience of gender, an experience of having a body that's different from other people. And that's a great gift. Gender helps us build attachments. Gender is a gift to help us build attachments. It can help us build attachments between men and women, but gender also helps us build attachments between men and men and women and women. It's just that those attachments, good as they are, should not be expressed with sexual intimacy. I might not be able to enjoy sexual intimacy in the world that God's created, but that doesn't mean I don't have gender or I can't build attachments with people. But of course, a caution in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we discover after men and women sin that they can use their bodies to hurt each other. There can be wrong ways of men and women relating. There can be pain. But, three, in the Song of Songs, God still wants to celebrate men and women and their union despite sin. Sin has ravaged our world, but marriage is still a good gift. After the fall, God can still celebrate through the book Song of Songs the gift he gives uh, to men and women of marriage. But four, this is not just the Old Testament's view. We've read this morning from Matthew chapter 19. God, uh, Jesus uses the Old Testament to explain his own understanding of sex and sexuality. Jesus doesn't improve on the Old Testament. He uses the Old Testament. And when asked a question about divorce, which is what the initial point is in Matthew 19, Jesus first of all steps back from the question of divorce and asks the question about the meaning of the world or the meaning of the creation and men and women within it. Beautifully, Jesus doesn't just answer a question about what divorce is. He backs out and says, first of all, let's get something right. God made men and women to join together in marriage. 
It's very deeply embedded in our world. And some people say, oh, Jesus wasn't opposing uh, uh, same-sex marriage. He didn't know about same-sex marriage. That would actually be a little bit naive. The Greek and Roman world knew homosexuality. Jesus knew his world. It wasn't like this was something that had never been heard of, though they might not have used the word homosexuality. But nonetheless, Jesus still affirmed a sexual relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, Importantly, Jesus never affirms a sexual relationship between men or a sexual relationship between women. There is not one positive word in the Bible about same-sex relationships. One of the fellows I've been arguing with for the last few years about this uh, uh, in the national church, he's against my view at every point, but he still says, Reese, you're right. There is not one positive word in the scriptures about same-sex marriage. He recognises that though he doesn't like it, the scriptures never affirm it. But five, in 1 Corinthians 6, for example, Paul trains us to think that we can leave behind sexual immorality of all kinds to begin a life after God's pattern, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been reconciled. Such were some of you. There is grace, there is hope for those who don't experience what most would experience. God has compassion. God doesn't leave us where we were. God doesn't renounce us, but God is prepared to draw close. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks of the hope which Christ brings to restore order again. And 6, just as the Bible began with the story of one man and one woman forming one flesh, a union together, so the end of the Bible describes a wedding feast The end of the Bible has a party where there's a marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. The Bible begins with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. The idea of God bringing together man and woman or Christ and his church is deeply embedded in the whole point of human creation and human history. And so God uses in the Bible the picture of marriage, the picture of sexuality, to describe what the future will be like. There will be no marriage in heaven, Jesus teaches in Matthew 19. There won't need to be any marriage in heaven. There will be just one marriage between Christ and his people and all marriages that presently exist will pale into significance compared to the marriage, the intimacy, the connection, the attachment that Christ's people feel with Christ. 
if sexuality or gender in the first chapters of the Bible is presented as something that helps us build attachments so there will be that great attachment forever as we see Jesus face to face. Well, I've given this quick survey of the scriptures, creation, caution, celebration, confirmation, compassion and completion. That's the context from which I speak. But for those of us who are same-sex attracted, the scriptures do not give us the option of expressing our same-sex attraction through genital intimacy. That's not the kind of oneness which human beings were created for or the universe was designed for. But having a gendered body is nonetheless a gift to me and a gift to you to help us build attachments in the world. Gender pulls us out of ourself. Gender helps us to make connections. We're not just random individuals who are like billiard balls banging up against each other through life. There's a deliberate design such that God wants us to build deep attachments. I can build those deep attachments with men and with women, though sexual intimacy is not an option for me. One of the most important verses for me over the last 30 years has been from James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Let me read them for you. James writes, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Let no one undergoing a trial say, I am being tempted by God, since God's not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown... It gives birth to death. Notice that, that James expects that you can be tempted but not sin. Desires or attractions are not sin in themselves. It's when that desire has conceived, verse 15, that it gives birth to sin. There's a difference between desires and sin. They're not the same thing. It's been a very significant verse for me uh, over the last 30, 40 years. So pastorally, where does that leave us in caring for those who are same-sex attracted? I don't know if you saw the Netflix show. Uh, it came out, I think, middle of last year called Coming Out Colton. It's a six-part, why did I do four when I meant six? It's a six-part series uh, following the life of a guy named Colton. He was the bachelor on the US TV show, again, not a show that I've ever watched, of course. 
He was the bachelor and he was an NFL player. He was a footballer. After his time on The Bachelor, he assaulted his girlfriends, a couple of uh, different moments, a couple, a couple of girlfriends he assaulted, and drug dependencies began to ruin his life. So he decides he's going to make public his same-sex attraction. Now, this Netflix show is brilliant. Uh, the storytelling is so well put together. Not always that I'd, I liked the way they told the story, but nonetheless, it was very carefully done. In the third episode, we discover that Colton had previously gone to church and he had lots of good friends at his church. So in that episode, they bring back a few of his old buddies to play some basketball together and he wants to explain to his old church friends that he now described himself, he uh, was gay. Now, the buddies, I thought, were really great. The way they responded to him, there were lots of bro hugs, uh, there was lots of caring, uh, um, and they said this, we disagree with you, Colton, but we really love you. And I was really actually touched by the way these guys manage it. Now, of course, I suspect that they knew what was coming when they were asked to arrive that day on the basketball court to have this filmed, right? It probably wasn't an entire surprise, but it was made out to be a surprise in the show. And he seemed to receive their love and their care. But in that next episode, he's decided that they actually weren't loving because they said they disagreed with him. And that to disagree with him was to be hating or unloving. I wasn't expecting that in the fourth episode. And they took him to a, an affirming church, a church where the pastor was uh, transgender and so on, and they sat around in a big circle and shared their experience. And he says, I felt more welcomed that day than I had with my buddies on the basketball court. The series is worth watching. It's a little bit confronting at points, but lots of movies are as well. I finished that series asking myself the question, what would I say to Colton? What would I say to him? How would I care for him? How would I pastor him as a Christian? I pondered it for days. It really disturbed me. And these are some of the things I decided I could or could not say. If I were Colton's pastor, I couldn't promise him that one day his sexual attractions would be different. That might not happen. I couldn't promise him any change. I know that I couldn't promise him a wife who was prepared to forego sex, so that could happen. I know some men who are same-sex attracted who are in married relationships. It's difficult, but possible. I couldn't promise to Colton that singleness wouldn't be hard or lonely. 
that would be naive. There are tough moments. And I also decided I wouldn't try to explain or uh, pitch a reason to Colton why he was same-sex attracted. There are lots of theories. I just don't know that in pastoral conversations they're enormously helpful. So what could I have said to Colton? Well, of course, it's, it's difficult now in Victoria. From the 17th of February this year, uh, it's now technically illegal in Victoria to, exp to give pastoral advice which directs the person towards certain kinds of behaviours. Those pastoral conversations are seen as being coercive. So it is hard to know how to speak to Colton or to anyone else who we might have a conversation with. However, these are some of my tips for those kinds of pastoral encounters. First of all, listen and listen and listen again. Even if there were no legislation in Victoria about counselling those who are same-sex attracted or giving pastoral advice to them, this is still wise advice. Listen a lot. Because the person coming to you, if they know you're a Christian at least, assumes that you'll judge. So you need to work extra hard to listen and listen and listen again. That doesn't mean you approve or you want to affirm every decision that they might make in their life. But it's still okay to listen, right? And to let them express, get off their chest, things that have disturb them or upset them or damage them. Secondly, it's really wonderful to reframe the conversation. That is, in a church context at least, to affirm that person and say, you have so much to contribute to our fellowship. You have so much that you can bring to our conversations, our care, our love that that person is not just denying something, but offering something to the fellowship. Not least, if they're a Christian, their costly discipleship in pursuing the Lord's will, the Lord's ways, not pursuing sexual intimacy, though that's the way our world would have it. Generally, I want to say as well, that our desires are not our destiny. The most important thing about you is not what you feel, is not your sexual attractions. Your desires are not you. You are more than your desires. Which is the very point that James makes in chapter 1, right? Desires aren't necessarily sinful they don't as a christian control us our desires are not our destiny and to point out to colton or to whoever else i might be talking with no matter your sexual identity you still have to use your body 
for the good of others. Whether you're heterosexual, single, heterosexual, married, or homosexual. We all have to use our bodies not just to please ourselves, but to serve the people around us. So in a sense, for Colton, his careful use of his body would be the same as all Christians. In a sense, I want to relativise the issue. I think for some who are same-sex attracted, there's a catastrophizing that this is catastrophically bad. Actually, I'd want to relativise the issue and pull back from some of the panicked reaction that might be part of the pastoral conversation. And beyond that one-on-one pastoral conversation, why can't we do better in Australia in inviting people into our homes? I think I've said this before at Red Door when I've preached here. You know, Australians on average just have two or three people in their home a year who aren't their family. It's just shocking. It's absolutely despicable. We're so bad at welcoming people into our homes. But a wonderful story of a woman in the US uh, who was in a same-sex relationship, Rosaria Butterfield, was invited into the home of a pastor with his wife. She was a lesbian academic. She taught at a university and she was doing research on Christianity. I don't know how, I don't remember how she got the, the number of this pastor, but he and his wife invited her into their home and she said, I've never experienced generosity like that. And through that encounter, coming to dinner week after week, month after month, she decides that she's going to leave her wife and become a Christian. Simply inviting her into their home, that's not rocket science, right? Made a massive difference in her life. And I think Australians are really bad at it. So let's more generally, as a fellowship, invite people into our homes no matter what their background. We need to teach people as well from the pulpit and elsewhere that singleness is not a punishment from God, singleness isn't the end of the world. It's actually a gift, according to the verses we read this morning from 1 Corinthians 7. It's a vocation, it's a calling. It means that those who are celibate and same-sex attracted can serve the fellowship in different ways. There's a calling to serve as you find yourself presenting before the Lord. Uh, I remember learning this kind of vividly uh, when I was 21, perhaps 20, 21, so no, not very long ago actually. Um, I, I saw a psychiatrist for a year when I was an undergraduate at university. He was in Kew and I was living at the university in Melbourne in Parkville. And his conversations with me were magnificent. He wasn't a Christian, he was a Jew. Uh, he was a great listener and therapist. 
And I was asking myself the question, why, not why do I have these experiences, but why, what can I contribute having these experiences, having learned all that I learned through uh, that year in, in seeing him. My last day uh, uh, visiting him, having, a, having therapy with him, I drove back from Kew to Parkville along Studley Park Road and wept, wept the whole way in the car, just calling out to God, please use this for others' good. Please use this for others' good. Uh, which is really just me in my own words or with my own tears uh, owning 1 Corinthians 7.7 7, that my own experience is a calling and thereby I can serve the Lord and serve others. Next, we often speak about microaggressions. Oh, I don't know if we often speak about it, but we do speak about microaggressions. I want us to talk more about micro-affirmations, the tiny things that might make so little difference in your eyes, might be enormously important for those who are same-sex attracted. The language you use, uh, appropriate kinds of touch, invitations for various kinds of family events or uh, meals or coffee, these micro-affirmations are magnificent. For me, are pure gold. And while there's lots of uh, debate in our church, there's lots of, not just in our church, in, in the media this week as well, uh, I think we can make up a lot of lost ground through micro-affirmations. The small things count. I want to suggest that not all same-sex attracted Christians will use the same language to describe their experience. Some people will use the word gay and some people will use the word same-sex attracted or some people will use the word homosexual. Uh, I think we've got to be generous in acknowledging that different people will use different words and not expect people to use the word that I've chosen I want to use or uh, about me or about us. The word gay means nothing for me. I've never been part of the gay scene, so for that, that leaves me cold. It doesn't actually describe me, so I tend not to use it, but I know other Christians who are same-sex attracted to do. And remember, friends, that your Christian fellowship, uh, this fellowship at Red Door, and I love coming here to preach and feel very welcomed and... Uh, very warmly welcomed, is such an amazing resource that we forget about how powerful it is. Christian fellowship is unlike anything else people experience around them. Now, I, I, I might be exaggerating slightly. There are Christian fellowships which have been unsafe, I recognise, and there are sporting clubs that have been very safe, Christian fellowships might be unsafe, but there might be other groups you belong to which feel warm and welcoming as well. I grant that. I'm not trying to say that Christian fellowship is perfect. But Christian fellowship is a magnificent resource nonetheless. To be friendly, to welcome singles, whatever their background Friends, 
these kind of dot points, these suggestions, you might pick up with me in conversation over morning tea. I'm more than happy to chat further about it. There are only a few, there's a lot more things I could have said. But I hope you see, at least from the service this morning, from the sermon this morning, that God does have an opinion. And in my mind, the scriptures are clear that God wants to bless a man and a woman in their marriage relationship and that God does not give Christians the option, those who are same-sex attracted, of pursuing genital intimacy. But I still love church and I love that all that the Lord does for me through you. So thank you. No matter what your sexual story, no matter your personal struggles or sexual identity, my prayer is that we might be able to sing this. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you, everything I need. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Amen.